Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Quincy Jones. Legendary composer, arranger, record producer. A man who had his hands in the production of some of the most enduring popular music of the 20th century. But this is not about Quincy Jones. This is about his third wife, loving mother to two of his daughters, actress and star of the groundbreaking television series The Mod Squad and Twin Peaks, Peggy Lipton. This story is about a girl. Peggy Lipton met Quincy Jones in 1968. She was on Sidney Poitier's yacht, trying not to sleep with Sammy Davis Jr. You'd think not sleeping with Sammy Davis Jr. would be pretty easy, but it was harder than it sounded. The Rat Packer had been a guest star on The Mod Squad, the show where Peggy played a hot hippie cop. And then she'd been a guest star on his variety show, The Hollywood Palace. Ever since, he'd been calling her, sending her flowers, inviting her to his shows. 
She wasn't attracted to Sammy, but he was a legend, and the attention was flattering. When he'd invited her on this two-week cruise, she'd said yes on a whim. Now, they hadn't even left port yet, and she was regretting it. She'd been ready for an adventure, she thought. Just not this one. She was awkwardly sitting on the deck with Sammy when one of the other crew's guests pulled out a big joint and lit it. It was Quincy Jones. Now, this was an attractive man. With the sun behind him lighting up his short afro and catching the nooks of his dimples, he looked like he was glowing. He was also married. Great. Now she would be stuck on a boat with one man she didn't want and another she wanted but couldn't have. When he passed the joint to her, she took it. Soon she was way too high. Panic set in. Things got weird. The rest of the night went by in a blur. A blur with a lot of shouting in it. Her most recent ex showed up at the end of the dock. By morning, she left Sammy on the boat and was back with the ex, leaving everyone on board thinking she was a flake. Just a naive young starlet. But she never forgot Quincy Jones and the way he looked in the setting sun. Much later, she'd say she'd fallen in love with him in that moment on Sydney Poitier's yacht. But after that, she didn't see him for four years. It was 1972. The 60s were over, and the mod squad was on its last legs, too. Peggy had quit pot and coke. She was seeing the last of a long string of terrible relationships with married men too old for her. Trying not to worry about what was next after being a naive young starlet finally got old. One afternoon, her phone rang. She picked up, and it was Alan, her friend who was always trying to set her up, whether or not she was single. You've got to come over, he said. There's a gorgeous young girl at my house, and her father is someone you're interested in. Alan knew her pretty well, and he'd never steered her wrong. So she went. When Peggy arrived, she immediately recognized the beautiful, stylish teenager in Alan's living room. Her name was Jolie. Only a few years before, she'd been the first black model to grace the cover of Mademoiselle magazine. She'd also been the first black model featured in Seventeen. And she was Quincy Jones's daughter. They sized each other up and decided they liked each other. I really enjoyed meeting your dad a few years ago in the Bahamas, Peggy said, then immediately wondered if it was a good idea to bring up the yacht incident. How is he? Well, he just split with his wife, Jolie said. She moved out two weeks ago. It's over... Oh. Um, is he dating? Uh, he's just starting to see other people, she said. But if there was a list, you'd be in the top ten. What? This was like a weird dream Peggy was having. The hot guy whose image had stayed with her for four years was being handed to her, freshly single, by his teenage daughter. This could be good for her resolution to stop seeing married men. Okay, he wasn't technically divorced yet, but it counted didn't it? She wasn't sure, and he was 13 years older than her. Besides, he was a heavy hitter in the entertainment world, a musical genius and the epitome of cool. He could have any woman in LA. 
if she was in his top 10, she couldn't imagine who one through nine were. She was just another blonde with a quickly declining TV hit. She couldn't compete. She fell asleep that night, resolving to forget about Quincy Jones. But then her phone rang again, a few days later. It was Joey. Would you like to go to dinner? My dad'll be there. Yes, Peggy said. She'd love to go to dinner. Peggy showed up in her best outfit, a little number involving shiny gold platform shoes. When they sat down to eat, Quincy ordered champagne, but it turned out the restaurant didn't have any. Hang on, he said. Peggy watched him running down the street. A few minutes later, he came running back, clutching the bottle of pink champagne he'd bought at the nearby liquor store. At the end of the evening, she kissed him in the front seat of his Buick station wagon. Later that week, she broke up with a married man she'd been seeing. All of those terrible relationships? That hadn't been the real thing. This was the real thing. She called him daddy. He called her bear. He told her how he had started playing music when he was young and how it had taken him from the south side of Chicago to Seattle, then New York, and now Los Angeles. Frank Sinatra had discovered him and asked him before he was 30 produced a series of records he was doing with Count Basie, and that had been his break. In the latter part of the 60s, Quincy had moved his focus to composing for films, including the Oscar-winning In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier. He told her he wanted to contribute to a positive sense of African-American identity through his music, but that he never wanted his race to define him or his work. He wanted it to speak for itself. Peggy felt like she could understand. At first, they mostly went to her place. That was fine until he opened her fridge and found a single hard-boiled egg. So he insisted she come to his house so he could cook for her. He made lamb chops. It was a pleasure just to watch him cook, the gusto and relish he brought to simple tasks. He sang to himself as he chopped ingredients. She never met anyone who seemed more vivacious, more joyful. She'd been a vegetarian for years, but sitting in Quincy Jones's kitchen, she knew she'd eat anything he put in front of her. The meal was delicious. Afterwards, they went to his bedroom and made love. In the middle of the night, there was a noise. What was that? Stay here, Quincy said. I'll take care of it. He was holding a gun. Where had that come from? Why did this cheerful, singing-while-he-cooked jazz musician even have a gun? What was even happening? Alone in the bedroom, petrified, she waited for the sound of a gunshot. Instead, she heard a voice. A woman's voice. His not-quite-ex-wife's voice. Baby, what are you talking about? What are you doing here? You've got to calm down. The voices overlapped and rose in a screaming match. Peggy winced, and then the door flew open. Peggy? The girl from the yacht? For a moment, the two women stared at each other. In the other's face, Peggy saw the beginning of heartbreak. She wanted to cry. But then the screaming match between Quincy and his wife started up again, and she made her escape. Back at her house, she tried to get some sleep, sure that whatever she had with Quincy had just died a premature death. 
Maybe she was stupid to think that it could have been more. But then her doorbell rang. It was 5 a.m. and Quincy was standing there, holding a rose he'd cut from his garden. She fell into his arms. Peggy had come of age in 1960s Los Angeles and was the star of one of the first interracial casts on a network television show. In what she considered a relatively open-minded environment, she hadn't thought much about being a white woman dating a black man. Such blissful disregard would not last long. Early in their relationship, she and Quincy were on their way home from dinner when they were pulled over by police. Quincy had never learned to drive, so Peggy was in the driver's seat. The cop took Peggy's license and registration and told her one of her taillights was out, that she should get it fixed. He didn't give Peggy her license back. He looked down at Peggy's license and then leaned in to look at Quincy. Who's this woman to you? My girlfriend. What's her name? Margaret Lipton, Quincy said immediately. It felt odd hearing her full name, the one on her driver's license. She'd been known as Peggy her whole life, and Margaret was only ever used in the most official of circumstances. She wasn't sure what was going on. What's her middle name, said the cop, continuing to stare at the license. Quincy was tense, and he didn't respond right away. Does he know this, Peggy thought? It's Anne. The cop stiffened for a second and then handed the driver's license back to Peggy. Get that light fixed. The cop got into his car and drove off, leaving Peggy and Quincy alone in the night. For a while, neither said anything, but Quincy was clearly rattled. Quincy, Peggy began. I don't want to talk about it. Peggy protested. The implication was clear. If Quincy had been white, the cop wouldn't have pushed it. You don't know what it's like to be black in this country. You never will. Peggy didn't have a retort because, of course, he was right. As much as she wanted to understand, she knew that she never really could. It had only been a decade since the Civil Rights Act had ended legal discrimination in the South. It had only been five years since relationships like theirs were illegal in some states. In fact, the first time he'd tried to get married to his first wife, in 1957, they'd been turned away by racists at City Hall. Peggy knew their high-profile romance would still make them targets for racist extremists and everyday bigots alike. And it wasn't only the prejudice of strangers they would encounter. It took a while, much too long, in Peggy's opinion, for her mother to accept the idea of her daughter dating a black man. Her mother never said this outright. She was too genteel to be openly racist. Instead, after Peggy got pregnant, she talked about how Peggy was too young to start a family, that she was practically a child herself. Mom, I'm 26. Her middle-class Jewish mother's problem wasn't the idea of Peggy having kids. It was that they'd be black kids. She pushed and pushed until Peggy against her better judgment, gave in and had an abortion. Afterwards, she felt devastated, filled with regret. She hadn't known how much she'd wanted that child, and she told her mother they wouldn't be speaking again until she was ready to accept Quincy. It took a month before her mother called again and said that she wanted to meet him. 
it didn't take long for Quincy's charm and warmth to win her over. And it wasn't long after that before Peggy was pregnant again with her first daughter. Kidara Ann Jones was born on March 22, 1974. When Peggy was released from the hospital, Quincy fawned over Kidara the whole way home. Being a mother was a difficult adjustment, but one that Peggy quickly warmed to and found suited her. The first six months they had Kidara would be some of the happiest of Peggy's life. One day, she and Quincy were lying in bed together. They'd just made love, and Quincy rolled to the side. I love you, she told him, but he didn't respond. Daddy? she asked. She looked over at his face. His eyes were closed and he was breathing erratically. She shook him. He was barely conscious. Peggy immediately called 911. At the hospital, she was told he'd had a brain aneurysm. He had a 50% chance of making it. His relatives were called, and they flew down from Seattle to sign the papers, releasing his remains if he died during the emergency surgery. Peggy watched them huddle together, feeling helpless and shut out. She wasn't related to Quincy by blood or marriage. It didn't matter that they had a child together. As far as the hospital was concerned, she was not family. Quincy survived the surgery. They drilled open his skull and put metal plates in his forehead to hold the bones together. There was a second aneurysm that could burst at any time, the doctor said, so they'd have to operate on him again when he recovered. But he was at least awake, asking for a plate of baby back ribs and some good music. Peggy had never wanted to get married. She'd been the other woman in plenty of other people's marriages, so she didn't have a particularly high opinion of the institution. But she didn't want Quincy going back into surgery unless she was the one to sign the papers for him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Quincy's divorce was finalized on September 14th. They got married the day after, and Quincy's second surgery was also a success, defying the odds. The aneurysm was gone. He could no longer play the trumpet, but he would survive. He threw himself into his work, not playing, but composing. He told Peggy that, as a black man, he had to work harder than others to keep proving himself. And now that he'd had so close a brush with death, he was racing against time, too. He would spread out pages of musical notation on the rug in front of their bed, making it impossible to walk through the bedroom. So they had their one-room guest house remade into a studio for him. He'd stay there for days at a time, crumpling up pages he thought were worthless. Peggy would retrieve them and unwrinkle them in case he changed his mind. Sometimes he'd go days without sleep, working on a piece of music, and then fall into a long slumber after he finished it. It was hard to find time with him when he was awake and not working, and it was frustrating. But sometimes he'd let her into the studio to play something for her, 
and she'd feel as if she could see a part of his soul. Kidara was barely two when Peggy found out she was pregnant again, and Rashida was born in February of 1976. Almost at the same time, Quincy was asked by his friend, the writer Alex Haley, to score the television miniseries that was being made from his best-selling book, Roots. Haley and Quincy had been close for a while. In fact, Haley had finished Roots while staying at Quincy and Peggy's place. And Roots was a huge project, a groundbreaking look at the lives of enslaved Africans brought to the United States. Quincy had poured everything he had into it. He experimented with African instruments, drums, choras, and nebras. He drew on the long history of music made by enslaved people. He consulted and collaborated with the best black musicians and vocalists of his time. When it was finished, his score for the two-hour pilot of Roots was one of the most complex, beautiful, and moving pieces he'd ever composed. Then, the studio fired him. They wanted something simpler, something that could be recorded more quickly to match their shooting schedule. Really, it was clear that they wanted something less black. Even in the nominally progressive atmosphere of Hollywood, racism was still commonplace. Certain filmmakers and studios had often presumed that Quincy couldn't compose music for white actors. It had been an uphill struggle. But after this, Quincy wouldn't write another television score. He was done. Peggy found herself thinking often of Clarence Williams, her co-star on The Mod Squad. Clarence had always been quiet, serious, and dedicated to his craft. The most he'd ever said to her about race was that he didn't like talking about it. He just wanted the same opportunities as everyone else. She hadn't understood how much of a struggle that must have been. Thinking about an entire studio system infected with bigotry seemed nearly insurmountable. She saw how her daughters were starting to experience the world. Kidada had darker skin, and while she felt most at home with other black kids, her half-white and Jewish identity meant she'd never completely fit in with them either. Rashida's light skin and hazel eyes meant her ethnicity was constantly being questioned. On one occasion, the three of them were watching TV together. Rashida turned to her during a commercial. Mommy, why is everyone on TV white? Kidada looked to her with the same question in her face. One day, the world will look like you, Peggy told her daughters. You are the color of the future. They went back to watching TV while their mother hoped she'd told them the truth. In the years that followed, Quincy's career continued to soar. He didn't need television work when he had Michael Jackson. They'd met when Quincy was producing The Wiz, the all-black musical retelling of The Wizard of Oz. And Quincy went on to produce three of Jackson's albums, including Thriller, the enormously influential blockbuster album. He was becoming one of the most powerful and wealthy figures in the music industry. Peggy was at his side as he collected awards and accolades, one after another. I just want to thank my wife, Quincy said in one acceptance speech. She gave up her career so I could have mine. All heads in the awards hall that evening turned to look at Peggy. Suddenly, she was uncomfortable and anxious. What Quincy had said was true. He didn't want her to work, and she'd agreed for herself as much as for him. She loved being a mother, a homemaker, but... 
She was pushing 40, and the last time she'd acted had been in her mid-twenties. Was her career really over? Was being Mrs. Quincy Jones all there was? Peggy was feeling uncomfortable and anxious a lot lately. In fact, she wasn't well. She'd contracted the Epstein-Barr virus, and it left her weak and listless for months. Quincy was using some of his earnings to build a fancy new studio addition to their house, so the family had moved into a rented house that made her feel displaced and ill at ease. The renovations ended up lasting more than a year. Meanwhile, Quincy had taken on a new project, composing the soundtrack to Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple, which he was also producing. He was away from home a lot, just when she needed him the most. Whenever she wasn't taking care of the kids, she was in bed, sleeping, or just crying. Over the next years, her and Quincy's connection seemed to come loose. She couldn't tell him what she was going through. She blamed him for some of it, and he was never around to tell anyway. He wasn't around when she found a spiritual guru and began to regain her self-confidence. He wasn't around when her mother was dying of cancer, and the two visited the guru together and found some peace that way. And he wasn't around when she decided that she had to leave him. Quincy would say later he felt as though their marriage had evaporated, slipped through his hands like mist. For Peggy, it was a part of her life that was simply finished. She was done being Mrs. Quincy Jones. She had to find out who Peggy Lipton could be on her own. Leaving Quincy was difficult. Rashida and Kidada were both confused and devastated, and Kidada declared she would be staying with her father while Rashida went to live with Peggy, who wondered if she had made a mistake. There was no vitriol in their separation, and they were determined to remain on good terms. Still, in the first few years, she only spoke to him when she had to. Newly single and with her girls growing up, Peggy started auditioning again. In 1989, she got a script for an odd but intriguing murder mystery TV show called Twin Peaks. There was a part that the director, David Lynch, wanted her for. She'd played Norma Jennings, the owner of a diner in a small town full of strange characters. Peggy thought the part was perfect and was thrilled when David offered it to her. Filming the show was a breath of fresh air, and Peggy loved being a part of it. Getting to act again made her feel energized. Twin Peaks was immediately popular and critically acclaimed. It changed ideas of what television could be. She felt lucky to be a part of another groundbreaking show. Sometimes she missed Quincy, but was ready to focus on herself for a while now. She didn't have sex or date anyone for nine years. It might have seemed lonely to some, but she was busy doing what she loved, so she didn't think about it. It was the 21st century now. 2019, to be exact. Rashida and Kidada weren't children anymore. They had grown into beautiful women with lives and careers of their own. Peggy had been living in New York for a while now, and a lot had happened since her marriage to Quincy ended. Her 15-year hiatus from acting had ramped up the desire in her to make up for lost time. So she'd stayed busy, working mainly on the stage and on a new season of Twin Peaks. 25 years after the original series had ended. When she'd been a part of the Mod Squad, a producer on the show had described her character Julie as a canary with a broken wing. 
when Peggy had first auditioned for the part. That had deeply resonated with her. At 21, she'd still felt like her own wings had been broken. But she'd since been mended. Over 50 years had gone by since the first season of the show. In that time, not everyone had made it. Clarence and Michael, her co-stars, were still alive. But a lot of people who'd come in and out of her life over the years had not. A lot of them had been Quincy's close friends. Ray Charles, Frank Sinatra, Michael Jackson, all gone. Peggy herself had been sick for 15 years now, fighting cancer. In that time, though, she'd had periods of good health. An enormous bright spot for her was getting to see her daughters thrive. Kidada was in the spotlight, like her parents, working as a model for Tommy Hilfiger and as a fashion designer for Disney. And a new generation of people fell in love with Rashida through her roles on the TV shows The Office and Parks and Recreation. When Rashida starred on her own show, Angie Tribeca, Peggy got to play her mother on the same stage where they'd filmed The Mod Squad. And she'd reconnected with Quincy when she told him of her most recent diagnosis. He dropped everything and been there for her. The cancer had returned. Peggy wanted to believe she had a lot of time left, but she knew she was getting weaker. It was harder to fight this time, and she'd spent most of her days in bed. Quincy or one of the girls was always with her. She wasn't scared. 72 years on the earth. Not everyone got that. Peggy Lipton died on May 11th, 2019, after a long battle with cancer. On May 14th, Quincy Jones wrote on Instagram, alongside a series of photos from their wedding day, There's absolutely no combination of words that can express the sadness I feel after losing my beloved Peggy Lipton, my wife of 14 years. We shared many, many beautiful memories. And most importantly, we share two incredible daughters. Regardless of the paths our lives took us on, I can say with the utmost certainty that love is eternal. Thank you for all the love and support you've shown me and my family. It seems, in spite of their separation, that he truly, deeply loved her. Quincy Jones is one of the most distinguished figures in the history of music. He helped create some of the most beloved and enduring music of the 20th century. In his career, he recorded thousands of songs and has received a record 80 Grammy nominations with 28 wins. It's hard to imagine the course of popular music without him, and his work with Ray Charles, Miles Davis, Leslie Gore, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, B.B. King, or Michael Jackson. But this isn't about them. This is about Peggy Lipton, his beloved wife, mother of two, and a trailblazing television icon. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. 
audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you liked the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com.